All right, if you have your Bible, either the old-fashioned version or on your phone, uh, go ahead and take it out. And uh, turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 6. And if you have the... Um, the print version, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, in that order. Ezekiel chapter 6. So in our 31-week journey through the Bible, we find ourselves at this spot, at the end of the kings of Israel, uh, the kings of Mess things up pretty bad. And the, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and things are going downhill rapidly. And that's where we find ourselves in the middle of the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 6, starting at the first verse. Again, a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man... Turn and face the mountains of Israel. Now, the mountains were where they would go, the high places, to uh, worship idols. All of these high places that they would go to worship idols. So prophesy against them. Proclaim this message from the Sovereign Lord against the mountains of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills and ravines and valleys. I'm about to bring war upon you, and I will smash your pagan shrines. All your altars will be demolished, and your places of worship will be destroyed. I will kill your people in front of your idols. I will lay your corpses in front of, front of your idols and, I, and scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, there will be desolation, and I will uh, destroy your pagan shrines. Your altars will be demolished, your idols will be smashed, your places of worship will be torn down, and all the religious objects you have made will be destroyed. The place will be littered with corpses, and you will know that I alone am the Lord. Wow. That isn't exactly the most uplifting part of Scripture, is it? Devastation and tragedy and heartache... And none of it had to happen. We usually skip over these parts. There's nothing in there that includes hope and joy and peace. And those are the things we like to focus on usually. Maybe we should just keep going. I mean, what do you think? Let's just blow by this. What in the world is going on here? I mean, what would bring God to this point? Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about God delivering the people from Egypt and freeing them from slavery and providing for them in, in the wilderness and giving them manna and quail and, and fresh water and leading them into a good promised land. And all of these things seem to be like the exact opposite of all of those. What in the world is going on? Let me give you some quick background. It all started with, after the death of King Solomon, you remember? And there was this king, there was conflict in the land, and they divided up into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because of the conflict. And so there was this guy, Jeroboam, this 
this king that was king over the northern kingdom. And he was concerned that the people in the northern kingdom would go to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, where the temple is, and they would worship there. And, and when they did, they would become give their allegiance to the king in the southern kingdom, and he would lose his grip on power. And so he says, guys, I got this great idea. You don't want to go all the way to the southern kingdom. Um, tell you what, I'm going to make some golden calves. Now, what is it with golden calves? It seems like they would have figured this out the first time with Aaron and they make the golden calves and they have to grind them up and they have to drink it. I mean, bad news, golden calves. Let's not do that. But Jeroboam says, I'm going to set these up on the northern border and the southern border of the northern kingdom. So worship will be convenient and you don't have to go all the way down there to Jerusalem to worship God. So he does that and he says, Israel, these are the gods who led you out of Egypt. Worship them. And so he, he institutes all kinds of idol worship. And from this point on, it is said that Jeroboam led, the, led Israel to sin. In fact... When all kinds of other bad kings come along, even generations down the road, the account of their rule says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord as their father Jeroboam had done. Now, Jeroboam obviously wasn't their father directly, but he had set the tone for idol worship, for turning away from God. Well, whew, what a relief, right? I mean... This is only about idolatry. So God brings about all this devastation and destruction that we just read about because they were worshiping idols. I'm, I'm glad because none of us have that problem, right? I mean, let's, let's test it out. How many of you have a statue of Baal in your house or an Asherah pole in your backyard? Raise your hand. See, good. Nobody. We're good. No problem. We dodged that bullet. I guess we can move on. Well, obviously, I'm teasing, but that seems to be the way we often treat this section of Scripture about idolatry because it's difficult to make the leap from that culture and those, those carved images all the way to our lives today. But that is our challenge this morning. What is it about idols that God is so upset about? And how might this relate to anything that we might be concerned with today? Well, in order to understand what's going on with idol worship and how it might relate to us, I gave you a warning before that we need to talk about the connection between love and giving, or you might say love and sacrifice. So, what is love? Every once in a while I ask a question that I actually would like an answer to. This is one of those times. What is love? Okay, I hear sacrifice, I caring, putting the needs of someone else first, which involves giving or sacrifice. These are some excellent answers. All right. So, you know, our society has a little different view of love. And unfortunately, in a second, I'm going to torture you with some of that. Our society says love is a feeling. Or an emotion, right? I mean, let's, let's 
go all the way back in time, way back, reach back in your musical and see if you recall this. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? I told you I was going to torture you. Um, all right? What's love but a second-hand emotion? That's what our society says love is. But when you hold that definition up to the light of Scripture, my wife is embarrassed. Um, uh, when, I should be embarrassed probably too, but I, I'm just not. Um, when you hold that definition of love to the, in, under the light of Scripture, it doesn't survive. You see, God commands us to love. He, he commands us to even love our enemies. And so love can't be a feeling or an emotion because you can't command a feeling. Love must be a choice. It must be an act, a choice to act. You've probably heard this before. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate demonstration of love was a sacrificial action for our benefit. Jesus sacrificed himself for us when we didn't deserve it. There's a close link between what you sacrifice for, your sacrificial action, and what you love. Now, you and I sacrifice for all kinds of things, all kinds of things, all kinds of people, things that are important to us. What does that all have to do with idolatry? What are the, what are the Israelites doing in their worship to Baal? They're offering sacrifices, right? They're offering sacrifices on the altar of Baal. They are, their sacrifices are declaring what they love. And God understands this link between love and sacrifice. I mean, when he chose to do the ultimate demonstration of love, he sacrificed his son for us. So he understands that the Israelites are declaring their love for Baal through their sacrifice. And so God uses language that gets at that. He regularly refers to idol worship as marital unfaithfulness and prostitution. You'll find that. I mean, if you want to look it up, Jeremiah 3, 1 to 5, talks about the people's unfaithfulness, their adultery, their prostitution. See, God has rescued these people from slavery. He's led them through the desert. He's provided a land for them. He's been faithful to them over and over and over. And what do they do in return? They demonstrate that another God is the one they love by sacrificing to Baal. Maybe you remember that the union between a husband and wife is supposed to be a word picture for Christ and the church. It's supposed to be a word picture for the love of God for his people. So let's make this a little more modern day. Suppose I told my wife, Shar. You know, I love you. You're the first love of my life. But I really, I don't have any time to spend with you because there is this other woman whom I'm going to spend all of my time. Now, while I was writing this, I, I thought, you know, this would be more powerful if I gave the other woman a name. 
And then I decided, I don't want it to be that powerful. So I, I kind of skipped over that for my future health and well-being. Um, all right, but, but you get the idea, right? I mean, you could fill that example with all kinds of things. What about if I decided I was going to spend all of our household income on things I wanted and there was none left for her? What if I sacrificed all of my energy for someone other than my wife? What would she say after a while? I think she would say, you know what? You say, you say, your words say you love me. But your actions demonstrate that it's really someone or something else that you love. What or whom I sacrificed for would be a demonstration of what I love. So back to our original question about idolatry. Is idolatry an issue with with us? We may not have a statue of Baal in our house, but are we doing the same things? I mean, we sacrifice for a lot of things. And we sacrifice maybe to buy a house, we sacrifice to buy a car, to, to go on a vacation, we sacrifice our time and our activities and our kids' activities, and don't get me wrong, I mean, we should be sacrificing some of those things, particularly for the people we love, but we also need to ask the question, where does God fit in all of that? Remember Children's Corner down here? What goes in first? Eugene Peterson says that prophets insist that God is the living center or nothing. Is God the living center of our decisions about how we spend our time, our money, our energy? Or does God get whatever is left over after we fit everything else in the jar? Are are there other things, other relationships that you pursue in the place of God? If you were to sit down and make a list and just kind of figure it out and say, what am I putting in the jar Is there still room? Now, my wife is the most important human relationship I have. And if you're married, your spouse ought to be the most important human relationship you have. Every important decision I make about how I'm going to spend my time, how I'll spend my money, and how I will spend my energy includes her. It's like she's at the center of those decisions. If instead I just gave her whatever was left over, she just got the leftovers. After I spent all of those things on other priorities, she would rightly question whether or not I loved something or someone else more than her. Do you include God in your major decisions about how you spend your time and your energy and your money? Do you, do you say, God, you know, I want, I want to honor you with this decision. I want you to be the living center of my life. I I want my decisions to reflect that you are the center of my life. That's what God is saying here. He's not just asking us to throw him a bone every once in a while. He's saying, I want to be the center. I want to go in first. So an important question, once, if we don't do that, if we put all these other things in first, and we seek our satisfaction, and we seek from other things what only God can provide, 
What are we trading? That's an important question. What are, what are we giving up? What are we trading? So in order to answer that, I need to tell you something about Baal. Right? Baal was the rain god. So what in our life requires water? Everything. Everything requires water. Our survival requires water. We are dependent on water for life. Baal, they believed, was the rain god. Now, we don't think as much about that when we can just turn the tap on, but these people were really aware of it. They, they depended on it for crops and harvest and drinking water and all of those things. And they believed that Baal provided them with that essential part of life. Now, these needs that we have, that sometimes we turn to other things to provide, they're not insignificant to us. You know, I mean, with Baal, the question was not, did the Israelites need rain? They absolutely needed rain. The question was, to whom did they turn to get their needs satisfied? That's the important question. We have real needs to provide for our family, to have a home, to have companionship, to have joy, to have hope. All of those things. The question is, to whom do we turn to provide for our needs? Do we... I could make a long list. Do we trust in our bank account? Do we trust in other human relationships that only God can provide for? Who do we turn? I was talking to a friend just a few weeks ago. I won't tell you the exact situation, but... She was wrestling with being obedient to a clear command of God. And she said, you know, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But if I do that, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me this thing that I love. It's going to cost me financially in a significant way. And I agree, it was, it would. It's going to cost me this dream that I have. And I answered, you know what, it might. It might indeed cost you those things. What you have to decide is what you love the most. If you love God the most, then you choose to be obedient to God and you put your trust in Him to provide those things that you say you need. That is the source. You have to decide. Will you pursue God or will you decide to pursue what you want? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, God says, For my people have done two evil things. They have forsaken me. In other words, they they have sought idols to provide what they wanted. And then he gives this great word picture. They have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that hold no water at all. It's no mistake that Baal is the rain god that these people are depending on him for the life-giving water, and God compares what they are doing to looking for water in a cracked cistern. Living water is the way of referring to water that's, that's flowing, a river that just continuously flows, and it's, it's clean and it's pure, and it's a source of water that never runs dry, but a cistern is just a big tank, right? A big tank full of stagnant water, And this cistern doesn't even do that because it's cracked. And so the water just leaks right out the bottom. 
message is clear. When we are faced with obedience to a clear command of God and we say, well, you know, I know I should do that, but that would mean giving up this thing or that opportunity. We have an idol in our life. We have something that has replaced God as the center of our life. And when we do that and the time comes to draw out of our cracked cistern, when it comes time to pull out the gratification that we thought that particular idol was supposed to provide, we pull out our gratification bucket out of the cistern in which we have put our hope and it will come up dry and empty. It's not only that, but if you've spent any time reading through the readings for this week, There is heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story of kings and people who turn to Baal and the devastating consequences of those choices. This is literally a life or death choice for us. So what do we do? What should be our response if we realize that we are pursuing something in the place of God? Well, the answer is found in a standout great king in the middle of all these idol-worshiping kings named Josiah. Right smack in the middle, Josiah arrives to turn the nation back to God. So you can find this, if you want, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 3 to 5, but it, it, it continues for that whole chapter, this whole section of what Josiah does. Goes on how to describe how Josiah completely removed anything to do with idol worship. He he tore it down. He smashed it. He burned it. He demolished it. He was quite courageous, I think, but he was declaring that Israel would not put an idol in the place of God. He was making a statement. He wasn't playing around. Sometimes we use the word repentance for that. To repent means to turn around. You're going this direction, you're heading that direction toward this idol. You turn around, you turn your back on that, and you head this direction. In Jeremiah 4, 1-4, the passage we read during the service earlier, God calls for repentance. He says, Oh Israel, Israel, come back to me. Come back to me. See, turn, you're going this way. Turn your back. Come back to me. If you will throw away your detestable idols and go astray no more, and if you will swear by my name alone and begin to live good, honest lives and uphold justice, then you will be a blessing to the nations of the world and all the people will come and praise my name. Israel, if you repent, you can draw from springs of living water instead of cracked cisterns. Well, I said at the beginning that this wasn't a passage of Scripture with the hope and joy that we usually like to focus on. That's true. Because sin is destructive and devastating in all kinds of ways. However, there is peace and hope and joy to be found when you make a decision to pursue God above everything else in your life. In order to tell you about that, I have to tell you a personal story. So last summer, we were back here, and, uh, you know, it had been about a year since we'd come back from China, and I'd been wrestling with that. Um, 
We'd been back from China. I was trying to figure out what was going on, what was God's plan, what my future held, what, what I was supposed to be doing. And, and I was out riding my riding lawnmower out in the backyard mowing the lawn, and I was giving God this litany of things. I was telling him about all the things that I wanted, telling him how I wanted to make a difference in China, how I wanted to be part of the exciting things happening there, how I wanted to see great things happen, how I wanted, how I wanted, how I wanted. I was pretty upset with God, and I couldn't understand how he could derail what we were doing. And it went on for some time with me saying, oh, God, I want this, and oh, God, I want that, and oh, God, I want. And after a while, over the loud noise of the lawnmower engine, God can get through that somehow. God interrupted me and said, is that what this is about? Is this about what you want? Are you pursuing me or are you pursuing what you want? I'm out in the backyard that summer day and I I said, yeah, God, you're right. And I began to say, you know what, God? I want what you want. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ditch all that. I, I've let what I want get in the center. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss all that stuff. And I'm going to say, God, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the future holds. But I want what you want. And right there on that lawnmower, the frustration, the anger, the all of those things were replaced by a peace. It said, all right, now you know where we stand. I got this. Springs of living water. So I want to invite you to stand. And uh, I want you to make this old hymn a prayer. A prayer to, uh, between you and God, there's some things that God wants to deal with you on, make this a prayer.